when my message team met, uh, which is Chris and Sherry and me, but when we met in January and laid out this service plan uh, and uh, series for the month of April uh, and picked the topics, there were really four things that we hoped to accomplish. I shared that on the first or second Sunday. We want to demonstrate the truthfulness of Christianity's uh, claims. We want to give you confidence in your faith. We want to motivate you to live based upon the truthfulness of Christianity and help you in explaining your faith to others. So let me recap where we've been in the series. We began by dealing with the question of, is it reasonable to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? The historical evidence establishes the fact of an empty tomb. So then you have to evaluate and examine the various theories that are put forth to explain why the tomb was empty. And as we saw that those explanations just fall far short of a reasonableness of belief. And the evidence points, again, to the supernatural, that Jesus was raised from the dead just as he had predicted many times before his death. And really, you can only conclude, can, can dismiss that conclusion out of hand if you presuppose that we live in a closed system, that everything must have a naturalistic explanation, and that there is no such thing as the supernatural. Then we moved on to this. Is it reasonable to believe God exists? And if God exists, what is he like? And I reminded you that the question of whether or not God exists is not a scientific one. You can't prove that, Jesus, that God does exist or doesn't exist scientifically. But you can philosophically, and there are good philosophical arguments for the fact that you must have a first cause to what is. And it's interesting as I read uh, across the spectrum in various disciplines how many scientists are coming to that conclusion and have in the last few decades. Now, one of the evidences of God's existence and what God is like flows from the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we started there. If he was raised from the dead, then we must put credence on his many other claims and teachings, including the relationship to his father. And so he said to his disciples, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we can discover what God the Father is like when we examine the life of Jesus and we see his teachings about who God is. Then last week we took a little shift and it was on the uniqueness of Christianity in relation to other world religions. Now for me, the thing I find that distinguishes Christianity from all the others is its answer to sin. The solution proposed by all the other living religions of the world are all man-based. It's all on our efforts, what we have to do to try to reach nirvana, heaven, whatever you want to call it in your particular religion. But only in Christianity do we find a solution that lies outside some moral or ethical command. You see, it comes down to the difference between trying to work your way to God or freely receiving something from God, which is forgiveness. Now, this morning, I want us to deal with the Bible. And specifically, is the Bible just fake news? Are the biblical documents reliable? Can they be trusted? 
Or are they simply stories that people have written down many, many centuries after the fact in order to justify this traditional religion? But how many times have you heard people say, well, come on now, you just can't trust the Bible. It's just a bunch of stories, but the, you know, it's full of errors and exaggerations and legends and, in the end, false and faulty accounts. Now, I want to begin with some general comments on the Bible itself and then talk about its reliability. If you've been around Knollwood for some time, a lot of this is not new. Uh, every few years, I like to circle around because I want you to have the confidence that what you hold in your hand is reliable. Okay? It, you, you can trust what's here. You can have confidence in that. But one of the first things about the Bible is how totally unique that it is. Just think about this. Written over, over 1,600 years, over 60 generations, written by 40-plus authors, written at different times, written, written in times of peace, written in times of war. Um, it's written in three, over three continents, written in three languages, and yet there is this inexplicable unity and continuity and harmony. The only conclusion I can come to is it is a uniquely divine book in origin. Vishal Mengelwadi, in the book that made your world, writes about the Bible and says this, an amazing feature of this library is that its books give an expanding, progressive, yet coherent view of life and the world. It presents a consistent yet unfolding worldview that explains reality and the human situation. It gives purpose to the absurd-looking life, meaning to the human quest for morals, and hope in the face of awful evil. By the way, that's our topic next week. It's a difficult topic, I think you would agree, the whole issue of evil in our world, but we're going to tackle that. So how reliable is the Bible that we have in our possession today? Should we be concerned about a book thousands of years old? Does it need updating to be reliable? The New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce has written, By the singular care and providence of God, the Bible text has come down to us in such substantial purity that even the most uncritical edition of the Hebrew and Greek or the most incompetent or even the most tangentious translation of such an edition cannot effectively obscure the real message of the Bible or neutralize its saving power. Long ago, as he put together a book, Josh McDowell talked about this particular test that's out there. It was put forth by a fellow by the name of C. Sanders. It's in his Introduction to Research in English Literary History. But there were three principles of historiography. In other words, of determining the reliability of ancient texts. Not just the Bible, all ancient texts that we have in our possession. And one of these is called the bibliographical test. It's best illustrated from some examples of writings of antiquity that come from F.W. Hall, Manuscript Authorities for the Text of Chief Classical Writers in the Companion to Classical Text from Oxford. You've seen the chart before, again, if you've been around. But let's just look at some examples. Uh, Caesar, in the period of 100 down to 44 BC, and yet the earliest copy that we have of a manuscript is dated at 900 AD. 
a thousand years after he wrote. And we have just 10 copies of anything. Plato and his tetralogies. Again, the earliest copy we have, 900 AD, a span of 1,200 years. See, the issue that we're getting at here is the distance between when things were originally written down and the earliest copies we possess called extant copies. That's what people are looking at in the field of determining whether writings of antiquity are reliable or not. Uh, you look at Euripides, writing in the 480 down to 406 BC, but it's 1100 AD where we can date the earliest copies we have. 1500 years passed between when they were written and the earliest copy, and we have 200 copies all from one copy. And Aristotle, in all of his writings, we have a gap of 1400 years between when he wrote these things and when we have the earliest extant copies, and with his we have uh, of any one work, five copies. Now, here's why this is important. Let's put it into perspective with the New Testament that you hold in your hand. Uh, we have over 24,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament. We can date them back into the, into the second century. We know that we actually have pieces of writings that we can, from the scriptures in the New Testament, we can now date back to the middle first century. Written only a few years after the events that they record. It's amazing. Now, if you go down to the Museum of the Bible, you can see some of those scraps of manuscript that have been dated back to that time. But here's the point. If you're going to dismiss the historical reliability of the New Testament, then you must, you, you simply must dismiss all writings of antiquity in a spirit of fairness. That's all we're arguing, is that what you hold in your hand is reliable as to what was written down, and the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, so far surpasses any writings of antiquity that we have. Again, let me, let me give you this source. Sir Frederick Kenyon was uh, the director and principal librarian at the British Museum, uh, also president of the British Academy, recognized as a noted scholar of ancient languages. He was second to none in authority in issuing statements about manuscripts. And here's what he wrote. The interval then between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to as substantially as they were written has been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. So the issue is not between the time difference between the events and when uh, you know, we're living today. It is between the events and then the time in which those things were recorded. That's what we're looking at. No serious scholar doubts the information that we have about Alexander the Great, and yet the earliest biographies of Alexander were written 400 years after his death. When you come to the New Testament, all the New Testament books were written by the end of the first century, and some as early in the middle of the first century, only separated by 10 to 20 years from some of the events in which they record. So I would say to you that the Bible is worth believing because it is reliable. The record of events is so close, relatively speaking, to the events that they talk about. 
that we have to accept the biblical record as being reliable. In other words, the events were written down accurately. Now, listen, this deals only with the reliability of the New Testament. It says nothing about its inspiration, nothing about its trustworthiness, nothing about the confidence you should have. All it tells you is what we have today is what was accurately written down when it was written down. But now we've got to think about the content in here. How do we know that the content within the biblical records are trustworthy? How do we know that those are things that we can take to the bank and we can say that is true? Well, I want to address the issue by pointing out some internal evidence within the writings themselves that point to that. So if you have a Bible and want to turn to the book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1269, pull it up on your personal device you have with you, but let's go to 2 Timothy and chapter 3. Paul's writing this letter to his spiritual child in the faith, Timothy, who's a young pastor teacher. And, uh, and he says this to him, starting in chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the Apostle Paul is talking about the sacred writings. What are they? It's the Old Testament. Remember, when Paul's writing to Timothy here, uh, there, there are no New Testament documents. So he is writing about these Old Testament scriptures, these sacred writings, and he says, and the, and the, the word that's used in many translations is inspired. Uh, the problem uh, is that the, the English word inspired is not very good, because really not what he's talking about. The way we use that word today is that uh, we're inspired by role models. We're inspired by a book that we've read or a movie that we've seen or we're inspired by the lives of others or we're inspired by a spectacular view of nature, whatever it might be. But that's not what Paul is using here. Uh, it, it's not that God inspired these people to write the Bible. The word literally means God breathed out and the English Standard Version has kind of grabbed that idea. It, it's been breathed out. Uh, in other words, in a sense, it's not inspired, it's outspired. Uh, scripture is outbreathed by God. And here's the key. It wasn't the writers of Scripture that were inspired, it was the Scriptures themselves that are inspired. Dr. Charles Ryrie writes that inspiration is God's superintending of human authors so that using their own personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. So inspiration has to do with the process of revelation being conveyed in the scriptures so that the authors wrote exactly what God wanted them to write, but without overruling their unique personalities and, and their vocabularies and their styles and their cultures. And so he used human element as a channel through whom he then inspired these scriptures. 
Now again, as I said, this all pertains to the Old Testament scriptures. We don't, we don't have the new and certainly a collection of the, of the new till much later. Uh, but look at this interesting thing that the apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. These are th there are things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. What's so significant about that? Peter puts Paul's writings on par with the Old Testament scriptures and is trustworthy and reliable as those scriptures are, so are Paul's writings and all that would come from that. So what do we say to those who declare that the Bible is just filled with errors? Well, first of all, let me remind you that inerrancy applies only to the original scriptures, the original autographs. We don't have any of those. You know what? I don't think it's, I think it's good we don't have those. What would happen if we had original New Testament documents, for example? They would have become an idol. They would have become an object of worship. They would be, you know, ensconced in some church somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, but we don't. We, that's why we're looking at these copies. But Dr. Bruce writes, the divine providence which sovereignly overruled and inspired inerrant, infallible transcripts of God's very words to mankind did not operate with equal force in the production of the copies and translations which we have in our hands today. But you have to understand how careful the copyists were as they painstakingly copied the scriptures. And so, yes, there are some little errors that have come in to those documents that we have today. So it might be, for example, uh, added letter or a drop letter. It might be the words like we use and mistake all the time. Even your word, you know, spell doesn't pick it up. There, T-H-E-I-R, and there, T-H-E-R-E. It'd be things like that. Um, every once in a while, a copyist who's, who's working on a manuscript might make a little notation uh, in, in the margin, and a later copyist would think, well, that's supposed to be incorporated in there. But what we have is the assurance that nothing of any substance is changed by those small errors that are in our text. It really does not do away with the idea of infallibility at all. There's not a single doctrine that is threatened or affected by these kinds of errors. Now, there's a second piece of internal evidence that comes to play here, and that's how Jesus viewed the Old Testament scriptures. Think about these things. He quoted from the Old Testament authoritatively. Uh, he, he never contradicted the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, to the contrary, he, he would say, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus believed the witness of the Old Testament in those words, and God said. He also accepted Old Testament history as true. And so he speaks in his ministry recorded in the Gospels of a literal Adam and Eve, not representative, not symbolic, but a literal Adam and Eve. He spoke about a literal worldwide flood. He believed in and spoke about a literal Jonah and so on. Um, he also accepted as true Old Testament prophecy. Now remember, there are more than 3,300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Well, you might say, well, people just wrote those, you know, after the fact. No, 
Here's the problem. You take our Hebrew Old Testament and we have a translation into the Greek language in the middle 200s BC. So even more than 200 years before Jesus ever came, this was written down and accepted. And now this is an interesting one, is that Jesus anticipated the apostolic writings. He declares the truthfulness of what the writers of the New Testament would later put down. And so he says this to his disciples in the upper room. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Here's the point, folks. Jesus held to a high view of Scripture. You cannot hold a high view of Jesus and a low view of Scripture. It is incompatible. We must, if we hold a high view of Jesus, also hold a high view of Scripture because he did. And again, I go back to the resurrection of Christ. If indeed he was truthful about being raised from the dead as he had predicted, then his other claims must also be regarded as truthful. Now, if by external evidence and internal evidence it is reasonable to trust in the reliability and the infallibility of Scripture, then we have to ask the question, what difference should it make in our lives? If we've got this book here that is reliable, it's truthful, full confidence in that, so what? Well, first, we have in the Bible God's Word to us. And we have knowledge of Him. We have, we have knowledge about us. We have knowledge about the world in which we live. And so we can see what he wants for followers of Christ. If, if we are to be like Jesus, and that should be the desire of our hearts as his children, then we must let Scripture do its work in our lives. Look back again at Paul's comment to Timothy. After he says all Scripture is God-breathed, then he goes on to describe the purpose of it in our lives. And he says is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be competent, equipped for every good work. That only occurs when we submit to the authority of God's word in our lives, when we conform our understanding and, and our convictions to the truths that are revealed there. Listen, this book here will do no good sitting on your shelf. Oh, it's pretty. It might have a real nice cover there. Uh, we can marvel at it, but unless, unless it somehow gets into us. And so we need to read, and we need to study, and we need to memorize, and we need to meditate. One final thought this morning as we wrap up and go to our dialogue time. The, the scriptures also tell us the ultimate outcome of what we call history. But not only the meta-narrative of history, that is the ultimate outcome of the entire human story, but also our personal history. And the reason why we can find personal inner peace in the midst of tumultuous and seemingly out-of-control events in our lives and in the world is because God is in control. And that's one of the things we learn in this book that God ultimately will be the one who determines what happens to human history and to our personal history. 
Ultimately, he's going to bring to a conclusion everything that began when he spoke the world into existence. And he's also going to work his will in your life and in mine if we will allow him to do that. We have to know his will. Here's how we discover it. And then we trust that he will work out in his time and in his way in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this marvelous record that we have of what you want us to have. That there's nothing in here that is, that is not important at some point in human history, even if it isn't for us today. But thank you for all that is in there that's applicable to each one of us in our lives today. And Lord, may we become students of your word, that we would want to know you through your word, that you would take your word and unite it with your spirit and with our believing faith, and that that would make a difference in our lives. And so we entrust ourselves to you today because you are a God of revelation. You've shown us who you are and what you are like and what you want us to be like. And for that, we are so grateful. And so, Lord, I pray your word would come alive in our hearts. For Jesus' sake and in his name I pray. Amen.